privilege of being back here in Scottsdale and opening the book of God to the people of God. We know these words are always a savor of life unto life to anybody here today who will receive them. And let's open our Bibles to the book of Habakkuk in the Old Testament, or as our English friends say, Habakkuk. You know, I, I, I preach in a different church around the country every Sunday virtually, uh, but I can tell you one of my favorite places to stop and come is, is over here in Scottsdale, mainly because I get to spend a couple of days uh, rubbing shoulders with Jamie and letting his spirit get into me by osmosis because I've never sat with a person that loved his people and his church and felt more blessed of God to have the opportunity he has than Jamie does. So it's a privilege to see such a beautiful relationship between pastor and people. I see some of you still scratching your head trying to find Habakkuk. <laughs> if you get to Nahum, turn right. If you get to Zephaniah, turn left, and you'll be right there at Habakkuk. And you better get to know what's in this little book, only three chapters. Because one day you're liable to meet Habakkuk in heaven, and he's liable to look at you and say, well, what did you think about my book? And uh, it'd be good if you knew what to say. And I want to promise you in the next 25 or 30 minutes before you leave here today, you're going to well know what his book was about, and more importantly, how relevant it is to us today, and how applicable it is to where every single one of us are living today. And if we can put a handle on the truth of Habakkuk, we can walk out these doors in a little bit, having been drawn closer to the heart of God and having our focus placed in the right place uh, as we leave today. Uh, you know, we live in a very uncertain world today. I've, I've been around this track now for uh, many decades, and I've never lived in a time of more uncertainty. It's uncertain world economically, particularly here in the Western world. Uh, with so much volatility in the stock market, people are scared to get in, and yet there's no place to park any cash if anybody has it uh, to, to earn any interest from it. Uh, it's just such an uncertain world. Debt uh, is accumulated uh, in such incredible ways, and uh, uh, our nation is in such deep debt. It's, it, it's an uncertain world economically. Uh, job market, we got another... Another bad job reports this last week. Folks are still looking for jobs in this economy. It's just an uncertain world economically, but it's also an uncertain world politically where people on both sides of the political aisle here in America are looked upon now with a lot of disdain for, that people have for professional politicians and hardly anybody feels like they can put up a candidate that's electable and and scandal after scandal continues to come in political circles. It's just an uncertain world that we're living in politically. It's also an uncertain world socially where we, with every passing week now, see moral values that we've held cherished for decades be stripped away, uh, religious liberties taken away time after time after time, where what just a few years ago slithered down the back alleys of our towns and villages and cities in America, now parades proudly down Main Street of our cities. It's an uncertain world socially. It's an uncertain world internationally, where on every part of the globe there's, a, there's an international hotspot, rogue nations uh, acquiring nuclear weapons and, and, and our own selves living in a world where it seems that in many places today our friends no longer trust us and our enemies no longer fear us. We're, we're living in an uncertain world. 
And so when you come to the book of Habakkuk and you open the pages to the book of Habakkuk, you find him living in a world that's so much like ours today. It was uncertain economically and and politically and socially and internationally. Uh, 2,600 years ago, he writes these words, and Israel found themselves in a place sort of like we're in today. Once Solomon had built a, a great world power, and now, as Habakkuk writes these words, we're about to see the Chaldeans, the Babylonians under Uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, come down upon Israel, destroy the city of Jerusalem, take the Jews into Babylonian captivity. And Habakkuk writes in in, in verse 2 and 4, he he addresses God in the first chapter. And, And this prayer is the prayer that so many are praying today, it seems like. God, where are you? Why don't you do something? Oh, Lord, how long shall I cry for help? And you will not hear or cry to you for violence. But where are you? You won't save. Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice doesn't seem to go forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth, but it goes forth perverted. These are words that describe our world today. Habakkuk was perplexed by the moral dilemma of his day. How could God, who called Israel the apple of his eye, who said his eyes were always on her, how could he now allow them to be defeated by these godless Babylonians, pagan nation, and and have the holy city destroyed and have them taken away into Babylonian captivity. And how could he refer, as he does in Scripture, to Nebuchadnezzar, that wicked king, as, quote, my servant. God seems so removed and so even indifferent to Habakkuk in light of what was going on. Have you looked around you lately? You know, none of us are immune to difficulties and storms of life and uncertainties in our own world. Uh, There's a wave of folks that will tell you that if problems come your way, difficulties come your way, it's because you've got sin in your life or something's wrong with you, you've got to look at it. But I want to remind you, if you're here today with a lot of things swirling around you, that Jesus said in the greatest sermon ever preached, the rain falls upon whom? The just and the unjust alike. None of us are immune to these storms of life. Some of us want to be like the psalmist was in Psalm 55, verse 6, when he said, oh, that that I had wings of a dove. I'd just fly away from all this mess and be at peace. Guess what? You don't have any wings. You got to deal with it. You're living with it. And you've got to know how to confront it. Habakkuk is teaching us in these three little chapters about one word. Focus. Where are you placing your focus? On your circumstance? On your situation? Focus is what the book of Habakkuk is really about and how important it is for those who are followers of Christ to have focus in their lives. Paul in the New Testament talked about this repeatedly. To the Colossians, he said, set your mind 
focus on things above. To the Philippians, do you remember what he said? This one thing I do, not five, not four, not three, not two, one, focus. This one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and reaching forth to that which is before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. I press for the mark. That word mark is an interesting word in the language of the New Testament. In Greek, that word is skopos. We transliterate that Greek word into an English word that we use often. Think of what it is, skopos, skopos. It's scope. Just like the scope of a rifle in those crosshairs. Paul said, I, I, put, I put it squarely in the crosshairs, that mark I'm pressing forward. I'm focused on it. Paul said, I set your mind, put, it, put Christ in the focus between the crosshairs of your own focus. Focus is so vital and valuable and important in life. You know, a few years ago, if you wanted to send me a letter, I wanted to send you a letter or a package from Dallas over here to Phoenix, it, it'd take five, four, five, six days to get there. Until all of a sudden, a guy over in Memphis, Tennessee, by the name of Fred Smith, decided to start a mail delivery service with focus. And you know what he focused on? One thing, overnight delivery. And most of us will send or receive a Federal Express package this week because of focus. My first pastorate was in Hobart, Oklahoma. It was a little town of 5,000 farming community. And down on the city square was the A&B Cafe. I ate breakfast there every morning, lunch there almost every day at noon. And you could go eat eggs and bacon in the morning. And at noon, you could get a BLT or a pimento cheese sandwich or whatever you wanted to eat there in that coffee shop. It was like a coffee shop in every hamlet and village and city and town in America. But then all of a sudden, a few years ago, Howard Schultz and some of his buddies up in Seattle decided to start a coffee company, but to do it with focus. And how crazy is this, to have a coffee shop that focused on, of all things, coffee. <laughs> and most of us will get a Starbucks before the day's out, or surely before the week's out, because of focus. That's what Habakkuk is about, because we're going to see him progress from chapter 1 to chapter 2 to chapter 3. In chapter 1, we're going to see his focus is on his problem. Where are you, God? Why don't you do something? His fist is in the face of God, and he's focusing on his problem. And it just leads him to confusion, leads him to ask all these questions in chapter 1 that, that really have no answer. Then something happens. As he comes to chapter 2, we find him shifting his focus from becoming on the problem to beginning to focus through his problem. And we're going to see how he did that today and how we can do that. And then thirdly, in the third chapter, we find the greatest way to focus on difficulties of life. And that is we find him focusing not on his problem any longer, not through it, but beyond it. First of all, in chapter 1, let's take a brief look to see what Habakkuk is doing here. Because some people, like Habakkuk in chapter 1, focus on their difficulty, on their circumstance, on their situation. I don't know about you, but... My nature is to do that, and I don't like it, but I do it. Somebody says something about me, or I have a problem come up, or some difficulty comes, or the rain falls on me in some way or something, and if I'm not careful, I put all my focus on it, and it just consumes me, and it, I just live with it, and I just think about it, 
And I wake up five or six or seven or eight times during the night with it on my mind. And, and it just, I, I, if I don't fight it, if I don't watch it, I have a tendency to do that. Maybe some of you are like that. Focusing on the problem and, and, and on the circumstance and on the situation. This is what Habakkuk was doing. Listen to what he says in verse 2. Lord, how long am I going to cry out to you about these things that are unfair and unjust? And by, I'm calling out to you about violence and you don't seem to say, where are you, God? Why don't you do something? You know what our general tendency is in times of storm when difficulties come out? To blame God. That's what he's doing. Where are you, God? Why don't you do something? I'm calling out to you, but you don't seem to save. You don't hear. Where are you? He's just focused on his problem. It's, it's like the question that Gideon asked over in the book of Judges, chapter 6, verse 13. Remember, Gideon was about to go out and fight the Midianite hosts. And the angel of the Lord came to him in verse 12 and said, Oh, Gideon. You mighty man of valor. The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. And in Judges 6, 13, Gideon asked a question I've asked a thousand times. Listen to what he says. If the Lord is with me, why is all this happening to me? Somebody comes up to you today and pats you on the back and says, Oh, the Lord's with you. The Lord's with you. And you walk away and you say, Well, you know what? If the Lord's with me, why is all this going on? Why is all this happening? Here is this focus own our problem. Just because you're in the midst of a difficult storm doesn't mean you're not in the will of God. You know, there, there are two kinds of storms in life that come our way. There are storms of correction and there are storms of perfection. Some of us may be getting difficulties because it's a storm of correction. You remember Jonah? God told him to go to Nineveh and what did he do? He went the other direction. And he got in a storm. And he got thrown overboard and he got swallowed by fish. And finally, three days later, he got regurgitated on the shore. And, he, and the word of the Lord came to him a second time, Jonah 3, 1 says. And, and he got with it. He went to Nineveh and a great revival broke out. His was a storm of correction. God was correcting his past. Sometimes he chastens us as, as, as his children. And we, we, get, we difficulties come because there are storms and God is trying to correct us to get our attention. But you know, there are other times when storms come when we're right in the middle of his will. Storms of perfection. Remember up there on the northern shore of the Galilee one time, Jesus said to the disciples, you fellows get in the boat and go to the other side of the lake. I'm going up in the mountain to pray. And so they obeyed. They were where God told them to be, doing what God told them to do. And they got out in the middle of the Sea of Galilee and a storm swept off those Golan Heights so, uh, so violent that they thought they were going to capsize and they feared for their lives. And all of a sudden, Jesus came walking to them on the water. And he calmed the storm. He stepped in the boat and he said, Oh, ye of little faith, why did you doubt? Theirs was a storm of perfection. He was perfecting their faith. Sometimes we get in storms and it doesn't mean we're not in the will of God. We might be right in the middle of God's will for our lives. Focus is so important on how we deal with these things. Moses sent the 12 spies into spy off the land of Canaan, if you remember. That, that could have, if they'd had the right focus, it had saved them 40 years of wilderness wanderings. And 10 of those spies came back and all their focus was where? On the problem. 
They said, look, I don't care if God did tell us we could take that land. They're walled cities over there. They're giants over there. They make us look like grasshoppers in their sights. Two of those guys, Joshua and Caleb, had their focus on God. And they said, everything those guys say is true, but God's in our crosshairs. He told us that was our land. He told us to go in and possess it. We can do it. And unfortunately, they took the majority report, wandered 40 years and until those other 10 died off and only Joshua and Caleb went in. Focus is vitally important in life. Some of us just focus on our problem. Don't do that. You know, I, I'm, I'm so blessed. I, I'm, I'm in my 60s now and I, I, I never get sick hardly. I'm so blessed. I, I never get sick in my stomach or anything, but there was a time... Uh, some time ago, when I got up in the middle of the night and I was so nauseous, I was just sick as I could be. I didn't want to wake my wife Susie up. I went into the bathroom, looked through the med- medicine cabinet where she kept everything, and there it was, way back there in the corner. I pulled it out. I was desperate. That pink bottle. <laughs> I even mentioning that makes me want to gag thinking about Pepto-Bismol. Well, I got that bottle out, and I was about to take a big swig of it, and all of a sudden, I looked on the side of the bottle in big block red letters. You know what it said? Shake well before using. Why? Because the ingredients in that bottle that was going to help me get well had a way of uh, descending down to the bottom of the bottle, and I had to shake it up real good so that it could be used and help me and get, to get well. And so it is with our lives. Sometimes priorities in life and things that are really important and matter to us in life or ought to matter to us in life have a way of descending down to the bottom of the bottle of our own priorities in life. And God comes along and shakes us up. That's what's happening to some of you, incidentally. You're being shaken up right now. You say, well, all this is swirling around me. I don't know what that God's just shaking you up. Why? Well, it's just what that says on that bottle. Shake well before using. God has something for you to do. He's just getting you ready to do it. Focusing on your problem just brings confusion. Leads you to ask a bunch of questions that Habakkuk asks that can never be answered. So we come to chapter 2 and we find him progressing. Now he he takes his focus off his problem in chapter 2. And he begins to focus through his problem. And through his circumstance. And you say, well, that's good preacher talk. Just tell us not to focus on it. Tell us to focus through it. But you don't tell us how. Well, let me show you how. Because Habakkuk gives us a five-step program that will teach every one of us how to focus through our problems. The first important word is the word perspective. In verse 1, he says, I'll Take my stand on the watchtower. I'm going to climb up in the watchtower and watch to see what he will say to me. Watchtowers were those, you can still see them in the land of Israel. They're, they're, they're little circular buildings made of native stone uh, that may be 15, 20 feet tall where the owner of a field or a crop could climb up in that watchtower and survey his land and, and see what it was a, looking from an elevated perspective, sort of like this platform is today, where I'm looking from this elevated perspective. Perspective is vital. Habakkuk's saying, look, get up in the watchtower and look from God's perspective on your circumstance. Not your own puny, limited human perspective. 
but from God's perspective. He says, and watch to see. He said, I got up there to watch to see what he would say to me. Perspective is vitally important. When we lived in Fort Lauderdale for 15 years, we raised our girls down there. And one summer when they were little, we took them to Colorado Springs to do all those sites and then around Colorado Springs. And one afternoon late, we drove into this famous Seven Falls. Many of you have been there. You drive in that canyon and you go in the curio shop there and the Seven Falls are going up that side of that canyon. And we picked up a brochure. And that brochure said just to the right of the top of the falls was a natural rock formation of a covered wagon. Well, we were down there in the bottom where the falls were emptying into that pool, and we were looking up there, and the girls said, well, where is it, Daddy? Where is it? I want to see it. And I, I, I never did see it, but I gave them that old lie. I said, well, it's just right up there to the right. It's just to the right. And uh, a few minutes later, we went up there. On the other side of that canyon is a cable car. It's no longer there. Now there's an elevator. But back in those days, you'd take a cable car up about 200 feet on the other side of the canyon, and you step off on an observation deck and look across the canyon at the famous Seven Falls. And as soon as you stepped off on that deck up there, there it was, as plain as day, on the right of the falls, a natural rock formation of a covered wagon. It, it was there all along. I just couldn't see it from that limited, puny human perspective down there in the bottom. That's what Habakkuk is saying. Perspective is vitally important. Begin to look at your circumstance and situation from God's perspective. You need a good biblical illustration of that. How about Joseph? Think about Joseph. Everything that happened to Joseph from the human perspective was bad. Jealousy is bad. Having your brothers jealous of you is bad. Uh, being thrown in a pit is bad. Having your coat stolen is bad. Having an animal slain, the blood put on it, uh, and taken back to your dad and, and, and having li be lied about. And so your brothers tell your dad, well, he must have been killed by an animal. We found his coat here. And have your dad live all those years thinking you were dead is bad. Then being sold out of that pit to the Ishmaelites by your own brothers is bad. Being taken down into a foreign land, Egypt, with a different culture and different language as a teenage boy is bad. Then being put on a slave block and sold like an animal is bad. Then when you get into the home where you're serving and who purchased you and you begin to do, be faithful and do everything that's right and then the master of the house's wife tries to seduce you is bad and when you've got moral character and moral fiber and you say no and you run and she rips your shirt off and then lies and said you tried to rape her is bad. When you're falsely accused of that and then thrown in prison is bad. Everything that happened to Joseph from the human perspective, was bad. But what happened a few years later when he was revealed to his brothers and he became the prime minister of Egypt and he was revealed to his brothers in chapter 45 and chapter 50 of Genesis? He says, listen, guys, God sent me before you. You may think you threw me in a pit and sold me out. That was God. God sent me before you to preserve life. And in chapter 50, he said, you meant it for evil. But God meant it for good. How could he say that perspective? He was looking at God's viewpoint. And Habakkuk said, I'm going to climb up there and watch to see what he will say to me. You know, that's what's important in learning to look through your circumstance. Not what you say to God. For many of us, prayer is just one-way communication. It's just us talking to him. It's not what we say to each other in counsel or conversation. Our hearts burn within us. 
Not when we speak to him or we speak to each other, but when he speaks to us along the way. Remember those Emmaus disciples? They said, did not our hearts burn within us when he spoke to us along the way? Perspective. You want to look through your difficulty? Look from God's perspective. Second, patience. Look what he says in the next verse, verse 3. Though the vision tarries, wait for it. Patience. You know, the true test of our Christian character just might be how we respond and react when we lose our blessings. Patience. Though the vision tarries, wait for it. Wait for it. When we left Fort Lauderdale, we'd been there 15 years. It was the love of our lives, and the church had seen tremendous growth, and it was such a great thing. We were coming to First Baptist Church in Dallas, and the moving bands had come and taken our stuff from Lauderdale back to uh, Texas, and, and the last weekend, my last Sunday, I was preaching at that church where I'd been for 15 years. Uh, we spent the night in a hotel, my, Susie and the two girls and I, over on Fort Lauderdale Beach before I preached that last Sunday. I get up real early in the mornings, and, and my youngest daughter does too, Holly. She was about 15 at the time, and we got up really early before sunrise that, morning, that Sunday morning, went out and sat out on the beach, had our devotional, and were watching the sun come up over the Atlantic. And our devotional that morning was from Psalm 130. And we came to that verse that says, Those who wait on the Lord are like those who wait for the sun. Here we were sitting on the beach waiting for the sun to rise. One translation says, Those who wait on the Lord are like those who watch for the morning. Those who wait on the Lord are like those who wait for the sunrise. You know what? You can go out there in the morning about an hour before the sun rises here in Phoenix and move your watch up an hour, but guess what? The sun doesn't rise on your watch. <laughs> you cannot hurry the sun. But I want to tell you something. There hadn't been a sunset yet that wasn't followed by a sunrise. It always rises. Those who wait on the Lord are just like those who watch for the morning. You're not going to hurry God. He's on his timetable, not yours. Though the vision tarries, wait for it. Patience. He always comes through. Third important word in looking through the storm, perspective, patience, promise. Look what he says next. Though the vision tarries, wait for it. It will surely come. And Habakkuk saw that. He said, what a promise. And he climbed right up on top of that promise and he stood there. Do you know that in the kingdom of God, we live by promises, not by explanations. And that's why some of you had not got it yet. Because you're still looking for an explanation. And God's giving you a promise. Remember Naaman? He was commander-in-chief of the king's armies of Syria. And he got leprosy. Went to the best medical centers that, that Syria had. Searched for a cure everywhere. And finally he had a little slave girl they'd taken from Israel. And said, hey, there's a man of God down there in Israel that cures leprosy. Having exhausted every other supply, Naaman got in his chariots with his regal entourage. And they went to the man of God's house, Elijah. And, and they pulled up there. And the man of God didn't even come out. He sent his servant out. And he said, just tell, tell the guy to go dip in the Jordan seven times. And he'll be clean. And that ticked, that ticked Naaman off. He got back in his chariot and headed back to Syria. And, and he said, Abarna and the far part of those rivers of Samaria better than that little muddy stream. But he was fortunate enough that he had somebody in that chariot had more sense than he did. And he said, look, master, he said, you've done everything. You've tried everything. What do you have to lose? He just gave you a promise. 
And so the, re, the rich royal leader, Naaman, pulls up at the muddy little stream of the Jordan, takes off his regal robes and walks down into that muddy water and submerges himself seven times and comes up and his leprosy's gone. But he almost missed his cure. You know why? Because like some of you, he was looking for an explanation and God gave him a promise. We have God who speaks to us. Now, when I talk about Bible promise, I'm not talking about playing Russian roulette. I'm talking about in the normal traffic pattern of your Bible study and devotional reading. You come across a verse. This ever happened to you? And all of a sudden, it's just quickened in your heart. It's like God just said, this is for you today. You live by it. And you take that promise. And you stand on it. Perspective. Patience. Promise. Participation. Look at verse 4. It's one of the most misquoted verses in the Bible. It doesn't say the just shall live by faith. There are seven monosyllables in the authorized version here that say, the just shall live by his faith. His faith. Here's this element of participation. You're not by yourself. God is with you. Peter said it in his little epistle that we have become what? Partakers of divine nature. Christ in me is the hope of glory. Peter said, we, we, we can come and share in the very being of God. God is with us. He's participating in this with us. He is with us. Here is this element of participation that God is with us. You're not alone. It's the truth of Romans 8, 28, really. Which, again, is one of the most misquoted verses in the Bible. It's a family secret. Do you know, if I were to ask you to quote Romans 8, 28, those of you who've memorized Scripture, 90% of you would quote it like this. You'd say, oh, yeah, I know Romans 8, 28. It says, all things work together for good to those who love the Lord and are called to His purpose. But you know what? You left off the, most, the way to understand that verse. It's in the first phrase. For Romans 8, 28 says this, for we know lost world doesn't know this. This is a family secret in the family of God. That God is taking all these things that are swirling around you and working them together for good to those who love him and are called to his purpose. It's a family secret. Perspective, looking from God's viewpoint. Patience, though the vision tarried, wait for it. Promise, it will surely come. Perspective, the just shall live by his faith. I don't have the love, but he does. I don't have the faith, but he does. I don't have the grace, but he does. And he just says, let's put it all together and live by my faith. He grants unto us repentance and faith. And one final word, our time is fleeting, so just go down to the last verse in, in chapter 2. And here's a, a word about perception. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Now, you know, our liturgical friends in these high church liturgical settings think that God put this word in there so they could have a little call to worship with their little choir that says, The Lord is in his holy temple. That's not why it's there. It's there because God is reminding you and me that he's not abdicated his throne. He's still in, he's still in charge. He's still the king of the flood. 
He still holds the king's heart in his hand. His eyes still run to and fro over this whole world to show himself strong in behalf of you whose heart is fixed on him. He's not abdicated his throne. In chapter 1, Habakkuk looks at the storm. He focuses on the storm. Now his focus is through the storm. And now we come to his last chapter, chapter 3. And we see the best place to put your focus before you leave. And that is to focus beyond your storm. That's what he does in chapter 3. Now time is fleeting. So just turn down to the last part. Look at verse 17. And I listen to this guy. This is the same guy that two chapters later has got his fist in the face of God saying, where are you? You're not doing anything. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the product of the olives shall fail, the fields yield no food, the flock. This is the same guy that just a few minutes ago was saying, where are you, God? Why don't you do something? I cry to you. you. Now he's saying, if everything goes kaput, if the flock be cut off from the foe, there'll be no herd in the stalls. I'll rejoice in the Lord. I'll take joy in the God of my salvation because the Lord God is my strength and he will make my feet like deer's feet and he will lead me to my high places. Why can he, you know why he could say those two I wills in verse 18? I will rejoice, I will joy. You know why he can say the two I wills in verse 18? Because of the two he wills in verse 19. He will make my feet like deer's feet. You ever seen a deer the way they jump so graciously and scale fences and obstacles? On that trip to Colorado Springs, we also took the girls up Pikes Peak on that cod train. Everybody ought to do that once. If you ever do it a second time, you need to get back and make an appointment with a biblical counselor and figure out why you've gone crazy because it, it, it ain't no fun. But anyway, we're going up that cog train, and we spook some deer, and they talk, take off running. You know where they ran? They didn't run down the mountain. They didn't run around the mountain. They ran up, up beyond the timberline, up where the air is pure, up where the hunters can't come. He will make my feet like deer's feet, and he will lead me to my high places. Looking beyond the storm is what brings clarity to our circumstance. Because you know what? There's a little phrase on almost every page of the Bible. Hundreds of times we read it. You know what it is? And it came to pass. And it came to pass. And it came to pass. This too will pass. Your circumstance, your situation will pass. You know, quite honestly... 90% of the things I've worried about in my life and focused all my attention on never even happened. It came to pass. Looking beyond the storm brings comfort. And you know, these are three ways as I close. You can, you can look at the cross. Some people just look and focus on the cross or at the cross. And, and that's why people can't understand. They don't, the disciples did it. Remember what happened at the cross? Their focus was on the cross, and so what? They all forsook him and fled. Emmaus' disciples, Cleopas and the other one uh, that I mentioned earlier, they walked back to Emmaus, and you remember what they said? We had hoped he had been the one, but their focus was on the cross, and they left their hope buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. Peter said, I'm going fishing. 
Some focus on the cross. Some focus through the cross. Jesus did. Hearing the night before in Gethsemane's garden, sweating drops of blood, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He focused through the cross. And some focus beyond the cross. Jesus did. In fact, the writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 12 too, that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now sat down at the right hand of the Father on high. What's your primary purpose? We all have a primary purpose. Everything has a primary purpose. primary purpose of a pen, I see these pens some of you have, is to write. I'd rather have a little plastic, big 19-cent pen that wrote every time I used it than an expensive German pen that skipped half the time because the primary purpose of a pen is to write. primary purpose of an automobile is to get you from point A to point B. I'd rather have an old car that started every time I put the key in the ignition than a fancy new foreign car that started half the time. I never knew whether I was going to be able to get where I needed to go. Because the primary purpose of a car is to transport. What is your primary purpose? Nobody has a thumbprint like you. Nobody has a DNA like you. You're an individual indescribably valuable to God who has a plan for your life. Where somewhere there's something for you to do because he made you like that, different from everyone else. Somewhere there's something for you to do no one can do like you can do. What is your primary purpose in life? To come to know him. You can know him in the intimacy of father and child. Whom to know is life. Not just a eternal life in heaven, but abundant, fruitful, purposeful, meaningful life. In the here and now. Are you folk, where's your focus? Are you focused on him? Because I want to tell you something this morning. He's focused on you. You're not here by accident. He's got you in the middle of his crosshairs. And it may be that you're just being shaken up a little. Because he's got something for you to do. And wants to use you greatly. As you move your focus from on your problem, through your problem, beyond it, to know that this too shall pass. There's hope. Though the vision tarry, wait for it. It will surely come. Father, seal these words in our hearts. For Jesus' sake, amen. <laughs>